Well, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, we'll do our sermon not about giving. You know, uh, I always want this time to be, of course, first and foremost, faithful to God's word. And secondly, want to be mindful of where we are as a church and also where, where you are as an individual, where you may be, want to care for you with this time. And today... I thought it would be good if we talked about the idea of betrayal. Um, It's a topic that Jesus covers quite a bit in his teaching. And of course, in our text, Luke chapter 22, the chapter is full of betrayal. And just a a few simple reminders. First of all, the Bible says, and, and surely you know from experience, that betrayal will happen to you. This is something that you will experience. And secondly, it will hurt. There are very few things that hurt as badly as being betrayed. But the third thing that I hope to show you this morning is that betrayal can actually make you happier in God. It will be bitter, but it can be, through Christ, quite a blessing. You know, historically, the church has gone through many, many betrayals, political betrayals, theological betrayals, as Jesus said in the chapter previous to 22, he says, you know, there'll be a day when people will hand you over to the synagogues and to governors. And he says, you'll be persecuted because of my name. He says, you'll be handed over. Handed over is the word that they use for betrayed in, in the New Testament by mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And it's this interesting concept that sometimes the person that you take a bullet for winds up being the one holding a gun. And pointing it at you. There's this very unique kind of suffering that comes through the act of betrayal. And the church, Christians have been experiencing this for thousands of years. And they keep coming out stronger on the other side. And that's because the church keeps repeating the pattern set forth in Jesus' gospel. Which is kicked off with betrayal. That's what Luke chapter 22 really highlights. A number of incidents all in one chapter in which people who said they were going to be one thing wound up being another. And Jesus feeling the brunt of that betrayal each time. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. This chapter is probably famous for, especially when I mentioned the word betrayal, famous for a guy named Judas, and we're going to get to him. But right away from the very beginning, we see a group of people who should have been extraordinarily loyal to Jesus being extraordinarily treacherous. It's easy to forget because of the way the story is told. They show up as sort of enemies almost immediately. It's easy to forget that theologically... These people called the chief priests, these people called the Pharisees, these people called the scribes, they worked for Jesus. They occupied offices created by Christ, for Christ. At the very beginning of the Gospels, we see a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, too, like these priests, Occupied an office created by Christ and for Christ. John the Baptist was a shadow, and so were these people, waiting for the substance. 
The only difference is John the Baptist acted like a shadow. And he said in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. But you have these folks, these shadows, these placeholders, these pre-types, refusing to give way to the fulfillment of their office and holding on with a tight grip on their power. And so you may not think of these folks as being betrayal, betraying Christ, but they are absolutely mutinous. They're absolutely mutinous. They were brought into the world to obey Jesus, to execute their religious offices pointing to Christ, and instead turned on Him. All this during Passover, the one week that may, more than any other feast week in Scripture, remind us about the coming Christ. Well, then you've got in verse 3, the introduction of Judas. Verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now there's several little things to note about this Judas betrayal. The first thing is, is that this is kind of happening on two different levels. On the one hand, you have Judas, who is a disciple, and he's the treasurer. And for a very long time, he'd been betraying Jesus as the treasurer. He'd been embezzling money. It's funny to think that Jesus had an operating budget, by the way. Uh, Judas was in charge of that. He was the money guy. And for quite some time, there were these small but significant moments of betrayal happening in the relationship between Judas and Jesus as an embezzler. And then you have this escalation. Satan enters Judas. Satan is the first betrayer, right? The fallen angel, the first act of treason in the history of time. Now, this may be a decent model, just as an aside, for spiritual warfare. What, what happens when spiritual warfare happens? How does it work? Well, in this particular case, it may be worth thinking about the fact that Judas had created sort of this foothold for the enemy. He had created, through his own smaller acts of treason, a place, an invitation, for the devil to come in and, and, and use him for a much larger act of treason. It's, it's interesting to think about it that way. The other thing to think about here is just how the love of money is so dangerous. You know, it is one of the most tolerated sins in our culture, by far. And we can't imagine, not well, how this little sin, quote-unquote, can turn into anything bigger. But Judas is a prime example of how something small called the love of money escalates and snowballs into something much, much worse. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the betrayal of Judas is probably the centerpiece of this chapter in terms of the thing that you think of when I say the word betrayal. And I want you to see that it didn't just happen in one fell swoop. 
that there were volitional and, and non-voluntary, non, non-willful moments in this process, that this was something that had been working for quite some time. No act of betrayal, no big act of betrayal happens in just one moment. There are millions of little compromises along the way, little millions of small betrayals leading up to the big one. So you've got the chief priests and you've got Judas, and I think we can see how both of them have betrayed Jesus in their own ways, and now they're working together. That's never a good thing. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But it's easy to miss, easy to forget, that in another way, perhaps not in the most literal definition of betrayal, but in another way, the disciples are part of this group of people who present themselves as one thing and turn out to be another. They're part of this unsoundness that Jesus is living in and around. They're part of this, you think about this, this, this chapter is full of, of, of this sort of, I get this vision of sort of this, this rolling, unpredictable landscape. Everything that Jesus is involved in, every relationship that Jesus is involved in, every human relationship is, is untrustworthy and going to fail him. You know, I thought this morning as I was praying, it's a good thing you know how to walk on water. Because this moment in your life, Jesus, would have felt like nothing was under your feet. In any earthly sense. In the sense of any human relationship you can count on for anything. The the betrayal, and I, I use that term softly to describe the disciples, but the betrayal of the disciples happens at multiple levels. Jesus says in another gospel account, you will all scatter. For it is written, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. In our text, in verse 24, immediately following the Lord's table, it says a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, if this conversation had taken place on the road to Capernaum or somewhere, you know, out fishing one day, I don't think I would call it betrayal. But within the context of what had just taken place, man, that would have been a tough pill to swallow. You know, I have on occasion preached sermons with a very clear and specific point. That may surprise you. And secondly, seen on those occasions, people in the audience completely contradict the point accidentally afterward on social media, for instance. <laughs> like I will say, don't, blah, 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 blah. And they will post on, fa- on Facebook, blah, 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 blah. My pastor said, blah, 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 blah. That isn't really betrayal. It's just kind of, you know, you wish that you'd kind of get it, right? But Jesus had just stripped down to, to uh, the, the, the base of his garments and bent down and washed all of their feet. He just told them, a new command I give to you, serve one another. He just elevated service to be the priority. And literally moments after what theologians call the mandum novatum, the new commandment, they start arguing about who's the greatest. 
Think about how that would have felt to Jesus. Parents, I know this has probably never happened to you where you've, you've seen your children engaging in a behavior you just told them not to engage in. I'm sure that's never happened. That would feel frustrating. But on the moments leading up to your death, and the moments where you just made an elaborate show of the importance of service, show is probably the wrong word, to see the disciples argue in this way and know that only a little bit later they would all scatter. I think that would feel like betrayal. And then we have Peter. <laughs> Peter tells Jesus, most assuredly, I will not run away. I, I will be with you till the death. And verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow, not crow this day until you deny me three times. I have some questions that I, I came up with this week. I don't have clear answers. They're not important, I think, to this conversation. I'm not sure there are clear answers. One of the questions I came up with is, what hurts more? Does the hurt get worse the closer the friend is. All right, there's these different levels of betrayal that take place here. And it's funny how they progress closer and closer and closer to the heart of Jesus. The chief priests were his priests. They fulfilled an office that Jesus loved. They led a people that Jesus loved. The chief priests mattered to Jesus. But we move a little closer to his heart. Now we talk about Judas, a disciple one of the twelve, his treasurer. And then we move a little closer and we see the disciples, the true disciples, the one Jesus knows will one day be apostles. And then we move a little closer and we see Peter, one of Jesus' closer friends. Another question, which is worse, evil enemies or flaky friends? You can see two categories emerge here. With the chief priests and Judas, you've got this sort of willful, premeditated wickedness. Theologians call this the sins of presumption. High-handed, intentional. They're planning and plotting. And then you have the disciples and Peter. These kinds of sins are often referred to as sins of ignorance. They sort of erupt out of us. Sometimes they surprise us, though they probably shouldn't. Now, in Scripture, the distinction between a premeditated sin and a sin of eruption, I'll just refer to it, that distinction is significant. That matters a lot in Scripture. We have gotten so weird with how we view sin that, that, that we really can't often navigate the way that the Bible approaches sin. We get to a, we get to a book like Psalms, and we see David referring to himself as righteous. Right? And we see him calling other people wicked. And we don't really know what to do with that. Because our understanding of sin is so flat. But, but this whole idea of premeditation, this whole idea of volition, all of those sorts of things, they matter to God. And they show up in this text. They should probably matter more to us. 
You know, we read a, 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 an already confusing book like First John. And they get to these places where it says, you know, if you say that you have no sin, this. And then it says, but if you, but if you have sin, this. And we're like, well, hold on, what's happening here? Well, what's, what's happening here is this basic question that we kind of keep coming to in the Gospels. And it's the difference between a binger and a repenter. The difference, they're both sinners. It's just, it's just how are they approaching their sin? The difference between someone who's premeditatively betraying Jesus and someone who's betraying Jesus because they are human beings who are sinful. Those distinctions matter to him. But the truth is, they both hurt him. both hurt him a lot. You know, I don't know which one of those is worse. And I don't know if you've been hurt in both of those ways, then maybe you would have an opinion. On the one hand, you have people who are conspiring against you and trying to hurt you and trying, trying to wound you. And then on the other hand, you've got people who actually probably do love you, but they keep hurting you. They keep letting you down. Which one of those hurts worse? I don't know. I've been betrayed, but I've seen it take place on a much bigger scale in other people's lives. And there's this strange phenomenon where I know it's about to get terrible. And that's when all of the enemies unite and all the friends divide. When you see that, if you see that in your life, Put your head between your knees and take a deep breath. <laughs> it happens. And it's happening to Jesus right now. All of his enemies are uniting. All of his friends are dividing. His, friend, his enemies are becoming focused, working together. Psalm 2, the nations of the earth conspire together. And all of his friends are splitting. They're departing. One of those things hurts when both of those things happen together. That is unique and terrible. And friends, Jesus lived through that, died through that, and many believers for centuries have experienced that. Betrayal is everywhere. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you when your enemies conspire against you. It's going to happen when your friends neglect you. It's everywhere and it's going to hurt. Now, let me hit a little close to home for a moment. Closer to home for a moment. It's possible that as a church member, as a brother and sister in Christ, walking with other Christians, it's possible that you've gone through a season where you experience this very coming together, this terrible kind of uh, one-two punch. Satan was attacking, the world was attacking, and it was hurting. And on balance, without being whiny, without being a victim, on balance, your brothers and sisters weren't there for you. So you were experiencing this outward attack and as you turned inward for care, for comfort, for encouragement, those people, not because they were malicious, because they were people, weren't there for you 
like you'd hope they would be there for you. The instinct in that moment will be to walk away from the church. Or to walk away from believing the church is as valuable as I say it is, as God's word says it is. The instinct will be to say, I will never be able to have human relationships that can give me the comfort that I'm hoping for. And therefore, I will cease to seek human relationships at that level. I guess it's just me and God. Thing is, is it's really only a matter of time once you make that decision to making the decision that's just you. God kind of falls off the map pretty quick once you've made that decision. I just want to point you to this fact. You will be tempted to do that, and I just want you to remember this. Jesus turned toward the church. Jesus didn't run away from the church. Jesus didn't run away from these relationships. He ran toward them. He moved toward them. Yes, they were a source of great pain. Constant discouragement for Jesus. Probably not constant discouragement for you and I. Constant discouragement for Jesus at some level. Constant disappointment, I guess. I'm not sure the right word for that. But I want you to know that if you've experienced that, and unfortunately many of you have, the world came at you almost with, with, with laser-like intensity, focus, and precision. And your Christian friends didn't have your back. I want you to know. God can use that to make the next experience different and to make the church different if you don't run away from the church. But I also want to talk to you as individuals who may have experienced this in your marriage. You may have experienced this in your marriage. Darkness came into your life in some form or another. You've been attacked spiritually, uh, hardship, etc. And you turn to the person that you think is going to have your back and they don't. They're not there. Like they said they would be there. And it's not always because of a malicious choice. It's always because of sin. But as I said, our view of sin needs to perhaps be a bit more nuanced. Let me speak specifically to this idea. You're a spouse who's been betrayed sexually. In that case, I want to tell you point blank that you've experienced both of these things. You've experienced Satan coming in to hurt you. And you've experienced a person you need to not let you down, letting you down. You've experienced that. You've experienced something of what Jesus is experiencing in this chapter. You had it from both sides. You had spiritual forces working against you. And you had the person that you really trusted turn out to be, at the very best, quite weak. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And no matter what point in his life, that would have been unbelievably tough. But you look at where he's at right now. And you look at what he's experiencing right now. And it feels as if the temptation to sin has just been turned up in Jesus' life. Because I said, as I said before, there's no solid ground under his feet. 
nobody he can count on. His friends have divided and his enemies have united. And I want you to see that instead of that, he responds with incredible righteousness. He sets a table for them. He, over and over again, especially as he interacts and deals with his friends who will betray him, he is concerned for them. He, he is concerned that they not fall away. He is warning them. He is praying for them. He's worried for their souls when he finds them sleeping. He's worried for Peter. He prays for Peter when Satan seeks to sift him like wheat. Jesus is the one friend, the one human being, right, and much, much more, who seems able and willing, not just willing, but willing and able to stick and stay and be faithful. So Jesus experienced this thing that you've experienced, this, this sense of being attacked from the outside and, and in some ways being betrayed on the inside. Jesus experienced that in a way that none of us have ever experienced it. And he responded with complete righteousness, complete love. Now, I want you to see why that is. The difference between you and Jesus and your response and his response is that Jesus didn't have any idols. When you are betrayed, you are not the only thing, person in your little soul shell to be betrayed. Your idols are betrayed as well. Your idols are attacked. Jesus didn't have any idols to be attacked. Suppose your spouse has been sexually unfaithful to you in some way. Your spouse is also in that act of infidelity, in that act of betrayal, launched an assault on many of the idols you've held dear for years. Your marriage itself had become an idol. You dreamed of a happily ever after Joko and a Honda Odyssey marriage. And you were told as a little boy or a little girl that if you just obey the Bible and go to church and marry a Christian, it would all be okay. And you'd be happy. That was an idol. Your own physical appearance since you were probably a teenager was an idol. You were obsessed with someone finding you attractive. And now in your spouse's infidelity, that idol is under attack. You wanted a safe space where things, dangerous things couldn't get to you. You wanted a place where the bad stuff couldn't get in. And you'd always thought that this relationship could be that space. There's no such space. That was an idol. You wanted to be loved with fierce loyalty. The center of someone's universe. And that was an idol. If you counted any human being worthy or capable of doing it. 
The difference between you and Jesus in this moment where there's no sound thing under his feet, where it's coming from the outside and the inside, the difference between you and Jesus is that Jesus didn't have a bunch of idols who were also getting attacked. Jesus was secure in the Father. The reason why it hurts so bad and causes such struggle is because on the one hand, you, the real you, you've been attacked. And on the other hand, the false you, the idol worshiper, has been attacked. And things you put hope in are now being shown to be tentative, house of cards, shaky, untrustworthy. What's interesting is that Jesus alone actually deserves all those things. Only Jesus could rightly demand to be the center of someone else's universe. Only Jesus could rightly demand to be in absolute perfect peace. But Jesus, in his perfect love and holiness, responds to betrayal with faith in God. A faith in the Father that you and I are massively struggling to come to terms with. See, the truth is, is that whether I didn't use the word yet, but every person in this room who's been betrayed is a cosmic betrayer. There's only one kind of person in this room betrayed betrayers, sinned against sinners, cheated on cheaters. That's what we all are toward the Lord. Because every one of those things we trusted in to bring us happiness and hope, every one of those things we trusted in to make us feel safe and good, true, those were gifts from God meant to point us to Him, to trust in Him, not to trust in those things. We are all by nature, Romans 1 says, people who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creation over the Creator who is forever blessed. We have this terrible habit of receiving gifts from God and before the wrapping paper is even off, turning those gifts into God's. So every person in this room who has or will experience betrayal is a betrayer. And the worst part of that is that it's keeping you from being happy in God. It doesn't feel like it's keeping you from being happy when they're not under attack. It feels like a really well-designed life. But in the perspective of eternity, that's going to keep you from being happy in God. And so, Jesus allows, as he did in his own life, he allows betrayal to be an instrument for sanctification. Jesus allowed betrayal to be the tool to make his death possible so that you could be saved, right? 
and not simply saved, but transformed. And not just transformed on the books, transformed in real life. So that progressively over your lifetime, you put your hope less and less in God's gifts and more and more in God. And what is the instrument that he uses so often to make us trust less in these idols? Betrayal. Hard betrayal. Enemies coming from without. Soft betrayal. A thing I trusted in isn't as trustworthy as I thought it could be. What is the net effect of those experiences on a believing person? Pain and consolidation of hope in Christ. Taking the hope that you had deposited in that thing, when that thing gets struck down, and putting it in Christ. Now, I want to make a really important point. I am not making the following arguments. Don't put these on Facebook as quotes. Uh, These are things I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you've been betrayed, you shouldn't complain because you're a betrayer too. I'm not saying that if you've been betrayed, well, now you know how God feels. I'm not saying, I'm not even saying that you should be patient with your betrayer because you've done the same to God. All those things, I think, have value, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. God loves you so much that he is using this very painful experience to make you happy in him forever. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Peter and John would have gone to a market and bought a lamb. And this lamb would have been no more than a year old, maybe a lot younger than a year old. And they would have taken this lamb into the temple area, and they would have stood in a long line with many other people with lambs, and they would have held their lambs over these, this, this kind of channel. And a priest would come by and slit the throat of this young lamb and the blood would flow into this channel and be collected into gold bowls which would then be poured on the altar. And then the priest would butcher this lamb, skin it, cut all the fat off. The fat would go into other bowls. Salt would be poured onto that and that would be burnt before the Lord. And then Peter and John would have carried this skinned, kind of recognizable lamb back to the upper room 
and would have begun roasting it for the whole day with bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. And then Jesus would have come into the upper room with the rest of the disciples at some point, And they would have sat down and ate this lamb that had been sacrificed on behalf of Israel, on behalf of them. It's such a weird thing, sacrifice. I mean, this dumb animal doesn't know where he's going. It's, it's, it's just this strange concept. A friend and I were out fishing one day, and we'd had such an amazing year of fishing. We'd spent you know, every bit of time we could out on these lakes by our house, and we were laughing and talking about how fun it had been this summer. Summer was drawing to an end. It was about this time of year. And we were like, man, why do I love fishing so much? And my friend said, you know, if you think about it, fishing is just like professional lying. <laughs> we're just telling this fish that this is something you can eat so we can eat it. The act of sacrifice is so strange. You, in, in particular with the Passover lamb, you take this lamb, you let it live in your house for four days, in the, the, the original Passover and you, you, at some point, you take the lamb's head in your hand, just like you would if you were petting it, and you lift up its head and you slit its throat. It's, it's this fundamental act of betrayal. The lamb didn't know that was coming. Jesus is the lamb that knew it was coming. Jesus is the lamb that knew that the blade of betrayal would strike him down. And he showed up. Friends, the, the, the way we will be healed in these moments of betrayal, the way we will be healed is to understand that like Peter, we have held the lamb in our hand. We have been the betrayer. And that Jesus' perfect atoning death not only forgives us of that sin, but sets in, sets in motion a whole series of events that will practically remove those sins, those idols from our life and turn all things for our good. He is using betrayal to make us less of a betrayer. He's using betrayal to make us truer to him. And incidentally, truer to others too. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned again, be there for your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Simon, you'll receive power from on high. Power bought by my blood to turn you into a more trustworthy person. To turn you into less of a betrayer. To make you happier in me. 
and stronger for those around you. That's what Jesus' plan is for every person here who follows Jesus. Whoever, every person who believes in Jesus, that's his plan. And he will use what feels like calamity, what feels like chaos, what feels like uncertainty. You will not have seen it coming. He will use it to make you truer to the Lord and truer to one another. Let's pray.